Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Horror versus Reality. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Anastasia. <laughs> uh, I borrowed that from Beetlejuice. Uh, and Morgan is with me as per usual. Hello, Morgan. Hello, Anna. We are so high energy today. Super <laughs> high energy. I'm on a tea break, so I'm sober. Like the most sober I may have ever recorded this podcast. I am hungover, and I'm, what is it, biting the dog that bit me. Oh. Oh, <laughs> good. The hair of the dog, whatever. Okay. I mean, I that's fair. Good. Okay. Good. <laughs> You'll be spunky soon. Yeah. <laughs> Shampoo effect, because probably, I probably still have some alcohol left in my system from last night. So Fair enough. You got to do what you got to do. Okay, so today's episode is Santa... Sangre versus Goyo Cardenas Hernandez. Morgan, I know you didn't get to see all of Santa Sangre, but how bananas is Santa Sangre to you? It is quite the bunch of bananas, and I actually was really enjoying it. I just hate that my freaking internet and stuff kept fucking up. I would definitely watch this movie again. I want to finish it when we get done with this. (laughs) That sounds good. But... Uh, you'll be, like, waiting to see... I guess you can... Basically, you'll be able to have a really good idea of what's going to happen, but also how good I told you the plot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, I guess without further ado, we're gonna dive into it, because I have a lot to cover. I wrote a ton about this. Um, okay, so today, my main source for today's episode is the documentary Forget Everything You Have Ever Seen, The World of Santa Sangre, as well as Santa Sangre itself and a few different interviews with Alejandro Jodorowsky, which is the director. The movie came out in 1989, because I forgot to tell you the date at the beginning. So yeah, let's talk about Alejandro Jodorowsky. So Jodorowsky is a Chilean-French filmmaker, among other things, and he has worked as a cartoonist a composer, a musician, a spiritual guru, a painter, a sculptor, a puppeteer, and a mime. He was a he was a member of Marcel Marceau's famous mime acting troupe. That's like the most famous mime of all time, basically. That's why. Yeah, so that's pretty crazy. He could literally do, I, I mean, I could literally, we could literally do an entire episode on this guy's life because he's just like insanely interesting and bizarre. I'm low-key obsessed with him. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll try to keep from doing a three-hour pod doc on Jodorowsky and keep it to a minimum. But amongst this filmography include the films El Topo, The Holy Mountain, 
Tusk. It's a children's fable, not the Kevin Smith body horror movie starring uh, Justin Long. He also has done The Dance of Reality and The Rainbow Thief. To many a sci-fi buff or general cinephile, the name Jodorowsky conjures many things, but only one subject is almost whispered about in reverence, and that is Jodorowsky's Dune. If you're thinking Jodorowsky didn't direct Dune, though, David Lynch did. Well, yes, you're correct. But before it landed in Lynch's lap, it was in Jodorowsky's. And he managed to spend all the money the producers gave him before filming a single thing. (laughs) Yes. And thus, Dune, directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky, was never meant to be. However, there is a fantastic documentary entitled Jodorowsky's Dune that shows storyboards that he worked on for the film that give evidence that George Lucas's Star Wars and Ridley Scott's Alien allegedly borrowed from these. I say allegedly mainly to not be sued, but watch the doc and decide for yourself. So Cristobal Jodorowsky is Phoenix in the film. Older Phoenix. Hold on. I want to go back to Jodorowsky's other movie, The Holy Mountain. Yes. Oh, my God. So I was telling you before we started that I saw this movie on mute at a punk bar. So when we first got there, they were playing The Holy Mountain. And I was like, holy shit. And we just stayed and, like, watched the whole thing. I mean, it was on mute and there's punk music playing but that movie <laughs> really wild i went back and watched it it's it's insane all of his movies i know are I, like that pretty much they're I really, really like the holy mountain it's a great film it's the holy mountain is is i guess his masterpiece his like magnum opus but i mean the soft spot in my heart is santa sangre of course of <laughs> as I was telling, yeah, as I was telling you um, beforehand, and I'm actually going to show you right now. So I have just got to wait for it to happen. Can you see me? I can. Okay, hold on. Do you see Concha on my oh, shirt? Oh, oh, that's a badass shirt. Thank oh, you. Man. You have to I, post that. I will. I got it from Paul Bearer Press. Not a sponsor, but they could be. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm a big fan of Santa Sangre. I first saw it with the Reddit Horror Club years ago, as a lot of movies I've seen were with them, actually. So, yeah, let's uh, get into more of the actors in the movie and uh, get off of Jodorowsky, because, again, we really could do a whole episode on him. Yeah. Because he's so fascinating and bizarre, and you will see that as we go down. So Cristobal Jodorowsky plays older Phoenix, and Cristobal is, of course, one of Jodorowsky's sons, if the last name didn't give that away. (laughs) (laughs) He is a Mexican-French actor, writer, painter, playwright, trainer, and tarologist. Yes, that means he reads tarot cards. He he is most well-known for starring in Santa Sangre, though. Like, that's the most, I guess, public his life really gets. So, Adam Jodorowsky as young Phoenix. He's another one of Jodo's sons. He's a French-Mexican musician and actor as well. As an actor, he is best known for his portrayal of young Phoenix in Santa Sangre. Uh, as a musician, he won the UFI Award for Best International Artist of the Year in 2011 for his third album, Amador. 
In addition to this, he has scored several films, most notably The Dance of Reality and Endless Poetry, which his father directed and Adam also had acting roles in. So now let's get to Teo Jodorowsky as the pimp. <laughs> Uh, Teo was yet another one of Jodo's sons. Again, Cristobal said of his brother that he was actually involved in gang fights and fuggery as a teenager, and it influenced his father to cast him in his role as a result. Sadly, Santa Sangre is the last memory Jodorowsky has of Teo because he overdosed shortly after filming. Yeah, according to Cristobal, Teo wasn't a drug addict, but he snorted something a friend gave him and the outcome was sadly fatal. As a result, Alejandro no longer watches this film. It brings him too much pain to watch his son's final days again. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was kind of sad to see him like almost breaking up thinking about it in the documentary. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. Okay, so Blanca Guerra as Concha, the lady on my shirt, uh, which is Phoenix's mother. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Guerra is a Mexican actress known for her extensive number of roles in film and telenovelas. She is probably best known for her antagonist characters, such as Contra and Santa Sangre, but she has also played the main protagonist in many telenovelas as well. Thelma Tixu as the tattooed woman. She was a Mexican vedette and actress of Argentine origin. She was one of the most popular Mexican vedettes during the 1970s and 1980s. A vedette, for those who don't know, is like a cross between burlesque and a little comedy, a little nudity, a whole lot of scantily clad women. Think cabaret. Starring in just a handful of films as most of her career was spent on the stage, she was met with financial ruin after her abusive husband and manager abandoned her. She lived with severe depression for the rest of her days and eventually died of a brain tumor in 2019 at the age of 75. God damn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's fucking sad. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't have the best life, but it sounds like she had fun on stage. I guess that's all I can give her. (laughs) So Guy Stockwell as Orgo, the knife thrower, uh, Phoenix's father and Concha's husband. Stockwell was an American actor who appeared in some 250 television episodes and around 30 films during his long career. If you don't know who Guy Stockwell is, you may have heard of his brother, Dean Stockwell, who played Al on Quantum Leap. You've seen Quantum Hmm. Leap, right? Probably a long time ago. Okay. Quantum Leap's a great show. The concept of Quantum Leap is, like, he's leaping into other people's bodies, um, trying to get back into his own, and he's kind of time-traveling, too. And each episode, when he bounces into someone, he basically kind of helps guide their life to where it, I don't know, should be going, or gets them out of whatever trouble they're in. Oh. Oh, that's a cool concept. I don't know if I've ever seen it actually. Oh, it's cool. You should watch it. I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. It's an old show. It came on in, like, the 80s. Yeah. You should look it up. It's great. Yeah. Looking <laughs> at the the pictures super 80s oh yeah oh yeah that's a good show though some of guys most notable roles include bob clayton in the horror film it's alive <laughs> i've seen it's, that <laughs> yeah it's alive can be summed up in two words killer baby yeah <laughs> colonel moss in uh airport 1975 opposite charlton heston and Morgan's gal, Karen Black. <laughs> yeah. And the horror film Grotesque opposite the woman, the legend, Linda Blair of Exorcist fam. Nice. Yes. Stockwell died of diabetes complications in 2002. Oh. Yes. 
Uh, Sabrina Dennison as the older Alma. Dennison is an American actress beyond Santa Sangre. Her professional acting experience continued on the stage via a U.S. tour with the National Theater of the Deaf, where she played Gertrude in Ophelia. Dennison continued her tour at elementary schools with the Little Theater of the Deaf. Dennison completed ASL translation for Yale's University's Twelfth Night. She took on the role of an ASL consultant at Arts Emerson, Broadway Across America, Boston University School of Theater, Commonwealth Shakespeare Company, Speakeasy, and the Boston Opera House. She's got an impressive little career as a deaf theater actress. Yeah. 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 I found all of that per her actual like website because she didn't really have much of an IMDb going. Yeah. Because I guess she's mostly on stage and they don't really count that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Jesus Juarez as Aladdin. Jesus Juarez is a Mexican actor known for Santa Sangre and Deathstalker and the Warriors from Hell, which came out in 1988. It sounded like it needed that kind of introduction. <laughs> it's oh. an epic name, and you know it. <laughs> it's apparently the third in a film series about this Deathstalker book, by the way. <laughs> so Faviola Elenka Tapia as young Alma. Tapia is a Mexican actress best known for her role in this film. And I couldn't find much else about her except that she had a couple of small roles on telenovelas briefly in the late 80s, around the same time as the filming of Santa Sangre. So before I get into my breakdown of the film, let's talk about the very reason we are doing this episode. And that is all because one day in a little Mexican bar, after dropping off his latest edition of Fabulous Panicas, his cartoon he did for a newspaper in Mexico, Jodorowsky met Goyo Cardenas Hernandez. The following is how Jodo described the meeting. Once a week, I did a page called Fabulous Panicas, and the newspaper had one million readers every Sunday. I did this for five years. I used to go to the newspaper to deliver my drawing. There's a bar near there, and I was having a coffee, and a small guy with a big belly and a pair of glasses sat next to me, and he asked me, may I have a coffee with you? I love your page, Fabulous Panicas. Sure, who are you? He said, I'm Goyo Cardenas. Goyo Cardenas? But he was a criminal. He killed 17 women. How? Yes, that's me. I was having a coffee with the murderer of 17 women. It was so weird. I asked, why? He said, because I was crazy. They put me in a mental hospital for 10 years, and now I'm fine. I've forgotten everything. I got married. I became a lawyer. I have some daughters. I'm a good family man. I write some articles. I also write novels. I'm a writer. That's it. That's my story. I'm a good guy because I was granted redemption by God. At that moment, the idea of redemption began. How can I, oh, how can a murderer, through different psychological or magic ways, forget his crimes and have a nice life? And then I thought I could probably make a movie out of it because our society is criminal. <laughs> We are poisoning the planet, killing people, having wars. These are crimes all the time. We are living in a destructive criminal society, but maybe one day everything will be forgiven by God and humanity will have its redemption. Human beings must be what they are meant to be, beings with a conscience, but not hypocritical animals who play art and other things when in reality there's a huge noise because they're talking bullshit. Humans, human beings sh should make this planet like a garden. That's what I thought. 
That is all a direct quote from Chodorowsky. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty wild. Like, he just came across him in a bar. Yeah. After he'd been released from prison and he had, like, you know, literally had this redemption story. So it kind of sparked that inspiration. All right. So the film starts with a naked figure sitting in a tree in a mental asylum. We learn that his name is Phoenix as nurses try to coax him off of his perch using a plate of raw fish to persuade (laughs) him to come down. (laughs) Yeah, that was gross. (laughs) Yeah. The doctor urges Phoenix to eat like a human and with a little coaxing, they manage to get him to put a beige jumpsuit on. It's the kind of coverall situation a mechanic wears so he doesn't get grease all over his clothes. (laughs) Phoenix zones out and the camera focuses on his chest which is a terrible looking tattoo of a phoenix (laughs) yeah really bad yeah i will actually explain how those tattoos were done um later on and we'll talk about that (laughs) so we flash back to phoenix's childhood which he spent performing as a child magician in a circus run by his father orgo the knife thrower and his mother concha the trapeze artist and aerialist The circus crew also includes, among others, a tattooed woman who acts as the object of Orgo's knife-throwing feats, her adopted daughter Alma, who is a deaf-mute mime, and typewriter walker, whom Phoenix is best friends with, Phoenix's dwarf friend Aladdin, a pack of clowns, and a circus elephant. (laughs) Uh, Orgo carries on a very... It's a ragtag team circus. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Orgo carries on a very public flirtation with the tattooed woman, and their knife-throwing act is heavily sexualized. (laughs) She, like, deep-throats the fucking knife. Yeah, she's... She wants that dick, man. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't get why, because he's not a detractive fellow at all. No, he is super ugly. Yeah. (laughs) Uh... Concha is also the leader of a religious cult that considers as its patron saint a girl who was raped and had her arms cut off by two brothers. Their church is about to be bulldozed at the behest of the landowner, and the followers make one last stand against the police and the bulldozers. It's a scene that looks a lot like environmentalists trying to prevent trees from being cut down to no avail. You know, like when you see an activist chained to a tree. It looks kind of like that. Yeah, they're all like Lincoln arms and stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's got that vibe to it. A Roman Catholic Monsignor arrives to attempt to resolve the conflict, but after he enters the temple to inspect it, it is deemed sacrilege, and he angrily leaves in disgust, so the demolition is carried out. Phoenix leads Concha back to the circus, where she discovers Orgo's affair, but Orgo happens to also practice hypnosis, and he uses this to put Concha in a trance and rape her. And it's a really bizarre scene. She's like in her cult robe, hopping up and down on him. I was like screaming. Yeah, it's... it's rough <laughs> it looks like she's getting murdered it kind of or sounds like it kind of, yeah it doesn't look like she's getting murdered it looks like she's fucking someone yeah with a, a robe on but <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the circus elephant dies much to phoenix's grief and this is a weirdly gut-wrenching scene we see we see blood pouring out of the elephant's trunk and poor phoenix and his little tuxedo on the steps next to the elephant wailing and crying please don't die yeah 
And a public funeral is conducted in which the elephant is paraded through the city inside a giant casket. The casket is then dropped into the city dump, where scavengers open it up and proceed to carve up the elephant and take away the meat. The way they start savagely digging into this casket, you'd guess the whole village had been starving for years or something. Yeah. Orgo chastises Phoenix for crying, saying he's acting like a little girl. And then he tattoos a spread eagle phoenix on Phoenix's chest, identical to the one on his own chest, using a knife dipped in red ink. That's right. This wasn't your normal bad stick-and-poke tattoo. This was a tattoo given drunkenly by an asshole father to his son with a fucking throwing knife. <laughs> Big-ass, like, bowie knife. Yeah, yeah. This tattoo, Orgo says, will make Phoenix a man. Later on, Concha, during her trapeze act, sees Orgo and the tattooed woman sneak out of the big top, and she demands to be put down so she can go and catch them in the act. She chases after them, and seeing them sexually engaged, pours a bottle of sulfuric acid onto Orgo's genitals. I thought, I thought this scene was so comical because she just goes over to a little shelf that conveniently has a giant bottle of fucking sulfuric acid on it. <laughs> and then just walks over and dumps it on him. Like, you just have that lying around? What? <laughs> Orgo retaliates by cutting off both of her arms, much like the girl Concha worships. Oh, shit. <laughs> Yeah, this is also a ridiculous scene. He cuts off both of her arms with these dull-looking bowie knives in one fail swoop of both arms. <laughs> like, literally impossible to do. <laughs> he then walks into the street, bloody balls hanging out, and slits his own throat. Wow. Yeah, and it actually shows like a long extended scene, and that's only in the NC-17 version, not in the original version. So you see a good bit of him bleeding out there for a second. It's a good time. <laughs> Sounds like it. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so presumably because, he presumably does this because he's just lost his beloved member to an acid bath. I mean, would you want to live without your dick if you had one? <laughs> yeah. You would? <laughs> I, no, I don't have a penis, but. I know, but if you had one, would you want to live with it if you didn't have it? Would you want to live? Yeah, like. Cut off part of your brain. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> uh, we're delirious anyway. <laughs> oh, yes. So, Phoenix witnesses all of this while he is locked inside a trailer that his mother locked him in earlier, presumably so he wouldn't try to intervene in her acid attack. He then sees the tattooed woman drive off with Alma, and Alma kind of does that sad looking out the back window of the car look that every kid who has ever had to leave anywhere before they wanted to does. Back in the present, Phoenix is taken on a trip out of the asylum to a movie theater along with other patients, most of whom have Down syndrome. A pimp intercepts them and persuades them to take cocaine, which, how awful is that that a pimp is giving coke to a bunch of Down syndrome people who don't really know what is what they're taking? Because they're so trusting, they're just innocent, they're just like, okay, sure, and they just like snort the stuff and now they're like, really hyper. 
Yeah. And so he leads them, the pimp does, he leads them through the street and it's like a carnival atmosphere. I don't know if it's carnival season when this is happening, but it's got that atmosphere to it. There's a lot of dancing and music and shady looking characters as well. So they dance their way kind of through the street to this heavy set sex worker. By the way, she agrees to fuck Phoenix and four of his companions as requested by the pimp for a whopping $20 American. Oh, God. They didn't say pesos. They said dollars. So I guess it's $20 American in 1989, which is definitely not enough for a morally depraved gangbang. <laughs> That's yeah. fucking awful. Yeah. Phoenix then spots the tattooed woman who is now a sex worker and becomes consumed with rage. Back at the asylum, Phoenix's armless mother, Concha, calls out for him from the street. And after pretending to be a better behaved patient, he escapes by climbing down a rope from his cell window. Okay, who is the genius who left a window opened near a fucking tall tree with a lim- with limbs that are close enough for him to jump out the window in a <laughs> mental patient cell? Kind of reminds me of Ted Bundy being left alone. <laughs> exactly. It's the same situation. Like, what? No. Anyway, the tattooed woman is shown trying to prostitute Alma, who runs away and sleeps on the roof of an 18-wheeler truck that's just parked. Dude, that's high. (laughs) Yeah, she, like, scales up it and just, like, sleeps on the top of the cab because, you know, she didn't want to be raped. Yeah. Pretty good reason. As you do, you run away. Exactly, exactly. The tattooed woman is then killed by the hands of an unseen figure with long red fingernails. Phoenix and Concha go on to perform an act whereby he stands behind her and moves his arms so that they appear to be Concha's arms. But Concha soon starts to use her son's hands to kill women whom Phoenix is interested in, including a young performer and a cross-dressing wrestler. It's kind of unclear what exactly is going on here. I can't tell... (laughs) Is it just nuts? Uh, No, I can't tell if dressing like a woman was just part of their wrestling act or if they are perhaps transgender because it's not really discussed. So a dream sequence subsequently shows that Phoenix has killed many more women than we've seen him kill on screen for his mother, all of whom haunt him. In this sequence, he's shown in a graveyard surrounded by unearthed women he has killed, and they are all painted white with, like, white... It looks like, like, white house paint more than body paint. They're just, like, coated. Which harkens back to a weird earlier scene where you see Phoenix burying the young performer that his mom made him kill that he liked, and he's literally painting her with paint, like you would paint a house while she's in the grave. And then he and then he hallucinates that she's a swan and that she flies out of the grave and flies away. Oh my god. This poor guy is so nuts. He's he's not well. He's not yeah. mentally well. Alma finds Phoenix and together they plan to run away from Concha. After a struggle between Phoenix and his mother, he manages to plunge a knife into Concha's stomach. She vanishes, but not before taunting Phoenix by saying she will always be inside of him, haunting him. <sighs> Through a quick series of flashbacks, it is revealed that Concha, in fact, died after being maimed by Orgo that day. Because if we were being real here, losing both arms and not immediately receiving medical attention is a good way to die of blood loss. Yeah. And that Phoenix has kept a mannequin of his armless mother for performing on stage and at home 
which also now appears in reality to be a thoroughly dilapidated house. He destroys the homemade temple and throws away the mannequin with the help of his imaginary friends, Aladdin and the clowns. So there's a scene where he like sees Aladdin working as a shoe shiner and he like recruits him again back into the fold and like finds the clowns just around too. But that's all been his hallucinations. Those people have not been there at all. Wow. Yeah, yeah. he's gone. Yeah. So Alma proceeds to lead Phoenix outside the house where police are waiting and order them to put up their hands. They comply and Phoenix watches his own hands in awe as he does so. His realization that he has finally gained control of his hands brings him joy and peace. And, you know, he like lets himself get arrested because at least now he's back in control of himself and not the ghost of his mother or the hallucination of his mother, rather. And that's the end. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cray cray. It's a wild I, movie. <laughs> I'm definitely going to watch it after this. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on what the actual, a lot of the scenes and stuff. Cause they're, they're bananas. <laughs> yeah. I love the, uh, the church's emblem is two arms that are yes. crossed each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's amazing. I love it so much. Oh, by the way, the mom. When she comes to pick him up from the asylum, like to break him out, she has earrings on, and each earring is also an arm. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fun attention to detail there. (laughs) Okay, so I've got some fun facts, as per usual. When Robert Leone, uh, one of the writers of Santa Sangre, went to Paris to first meet with Jodorowsky, Jodo was dressed entirely in purple, including his socks and shoes. This was apparently the first time Robert Leone had ever seen purple shoes. This was in 1986 or 1987, according to Leone. That's so covered in purple. Completely purple, head to toe. (laughs) (laughs) Santa Sangre was produced by Claudio Argento, which is Dario Argento's brother. Dario Argento, uh, for those who are uninitiated into the world of Giallo, is one of the most recognized names in Italian horror, particularly the Giallo subgenre. It usually blends the atmosphere and suspense of thriller fiction with elements of horror fiction, such as slasher violence and eroticism, similar to the French fantastique genre, and often involves a mysterious killer with black or white gloves whose identity is not revealed until the final act of the film. There is also a fair amount of nudity in giallos, and giallos derive their name from the yellow-covered detective suspense novels that were wildly popular in Italy at the time. Okay, the U.S. has two versions of Santa Sangre available on DVD, Blu-ray, video, whatever you want to call it. The rated R version, which runs about 120 minutes, and the NC-17 version, which is about 123 minutes. The one released uncut in Britain and other European countries. The differences between the two are hardly noticeable except for two scenes. The first scene being the dismemberment of Concha. 
In the NC-17 version, there are extra cuts of blood and gore spraying on the walls. And then we also see a few extra shots of blood spurting out of the father's neck shortly after he commits suicide. We see this from behind, a startlingly unexplicit shot to be considered NC-17 material, but whatever. Uh, the other scene is even more noticeable. The death of the tattooed woman is much more explicit in the NC-17 version. We see many shots of her being graphically stabbed in the back and chest with loads of blood literally dumping out of her body. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and then we briefly see the knife stab through the back of her neck and poke out the front, all in one explicit shot. Uh, practically the entire scene is missing in the R-rated version. Wow. Yes. So I Yes. On 2B, is that the NC-17 version or is that the R version? I think it's the NC-17 version because when you turn it on on 2B, it has the NC-17 label on it. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so I think it's the correct version. All right. Um, I The one I own on DVD is NC-17. Because who wants to own the R-rated version? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Give me the gore. Yeah. I want all of it. I want the <laughs> whole thing that the director envisioned. I want multiple buckets, not just one bucket. Yeah, buckets of gore. Buckets. <laughs> okay. The lines, the line during the death of the elephant, the elephant is dying, is used as the opening line of What's Up With You, a song by Eddie Murphy and Michael Jackson. What? I'm not even joking. It's such an odd choice, and it's not even the king of, and not even the king of pop could save this song from mediocrity. The music video also looks like Eddie Murphy just learned how to use a green screen. <laughs> you have to look this up. It is bizarre. Oh, 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 yeah, that's bad. That's really bad. But yeah, you turn it on and literally nothing to do with the other song at the very beginning. It's just got that one little clip. The elephant is dying. Wow, that is really weird. So why weird. They, why I would you pick that? I don't know. <sighs> Maybe Eddie Murphy is secretly a really big Jodorowsky fan. <laughs> yeah, but it says that song was created in 92, and this yeah. was recorded in 89. Yeah, so. Oh, I'm an idiot. It's backwards. <laughs> I was thinking, <laughs> but okay, I'm an idiot. I thought the music was playing in the background of that scene, but you're saying the scene is in the yes. song. <laughs> yes, they sample a a quote from the movie in the song. Oh my god. <laughs> what is the actual book? I don't know. It's really weird. <laughs> I really want to ask Eddie Murphy. I would love to ask. You know what? If I ever get a chance <laughs> through my journalism to interview Eddie Murphy, that is 100% the first thing I'm going to ask him. <laughs> Why did you sample... <laughs> Santa's song great for what's up with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, in fact, I have that question to ask you, Eddie Murphy. What's up with you? <laughs> yeah, what's up with you? Uh, anyway, all right. So Claudio Argento originally wanted Angelica Houston to play the role of Concha and Jack Nicholson to play the role of Orgo. But Jodo didn't want to work with famous actors, and also they couldn't afford them. Uh, but he did state, no, it's impossible. They are stars. They will ruin my movie. They are great, but it's crazy to have Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston in this movie. Side note, side note. If he had cast these two in these roles, they may have gotten some very art-imitating-life performances, as Jack Nicholson was actually carrying on an affair behind... Angelica Houston's back around this time. Oh, shit. This was, like, right before they broke up for good. 
so that anger between them would have actually been real yeah it really could have been yeah uh, yeah because houston and nicholson were in an off again on again relationship for like 17 years which ended in 1990 not too long after this movie so woo yeah wow if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with juvederm volbella xc or juvederm ultra xc do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Okay, so, <laughs> so Jodorowsky told his son, Aiden, uh, who was eight years old at the time, that you have to be good in this movie because for me, it is a question of death and life, all right? For me. If you do it and you don't act well, the movie is going to be a really shitty movie because of you so you have to be a good actor damn yeah and that's not all aiden said several times that he promised his father he'd be a good actor before his father slapped him and said you have to remember you have to be good at this movie it was the first and only time his father had slapped him 20 yeah 20 or so years later they were on a tv show together doing an interview and jodorowsky said to aden 20 years ago i slapped you so you have to slap me now in front of millions of people So Aiden slaps him, and Jodo says, no, harder, and bam. All right, now we are good. (laughs) (laughs) I love this family. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Is there a documentary on this family? I I mean, if you want to watch the movie, the the documentary about this movie and the documentary about Jodorowsky, that's about as deep as you're going to get. But yeah, you get a good, some pretty good insight, I think. The documentary is also on Tubi, by the way. Yeah, no, that one popped up first. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah. All right. So the bizarre scene where a man tears his ear off and rubs it on Alma's face features a man who pulled a real life Van Gogh and cut his own ear off in the name of love. What? Yeah. So he pulls off his fake ear. Yeah. Basically, someone on the set knew this guy who had a fake ear and they thought this would just be a good weird scene to throw in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So he just, like, rips off his fake ear and, like, rubs it on her face. And she, like, runs and hides. Oh, what the fuck? It's really weird. Oh, my God. Yeah. This movie's just nuts. It is. It's nuts, and I love it. I know. (laughs) 
So Jodorowsky had to judge an illegal trans beauty contest to get all trans extras featured in the film Dancing in the Streets. But he came with their, but they came with their costumes, so free costumes. That was Jodo's attitude about it. <sighs> he was like, if I, if all I have to do is judge this contest, and I had the small risk of maybe getting arrested, it's worth it to get all these, these, these free actors and costumes. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If a scene called for rain, they would literally wait for it to rain for the scene because Jodorowsky preferred realism, despite the fact that so much of this film is surreal. Yeah, that's... But they use a lot of method acting, as you'll see. And what I, you'll see what I mean. Um, so Guy Stockwell was very nervous about the nude scene with Thelma Tixu, but she told him to relax because she wasn't trying to look at his business, not because he didn't have business to look at, but because they were professionals. <laughs> Before filming, Jodo told Cristobal, I have my house and you have yours. For this, we are not father and son, but director and actor. And that turned out to be pretty serious. So the tattooed woman's tattoos were originally done in Hollywood paint made for small tattoos. But because they covered her body in it, it became toxic. And Thelma Tixu had to be rushed to the hospital. Oh, shit. Yeah, after that, they experimented and ended up doing her tattoos with Bic pens and food coloring, <laughs> which is why they look so terrible. Uh, yeah, uh, in the scene, yeah. Can you yeah. imagine just about to, like, go on set, get everything ready, and you're like, everything itches. <laughs> like She, like, didn't get to shower. She needed to, like, keep that on. Oh, God. So, like, she was in that paint for, like, several days, I think. Oh, fuck. Yeah, that's fun, right? But she smelled. She said the best day of all the shooting was the day she got to shower. <laughs> <laughs> In the scene where young Phoenix is being tattooed, he is really crying. Uh, Jodorowsky asked his son if he was all right with him pinching his legs under the table in that scene to make him produce real tears. Aiden said of this incident, It was really cruel, but it was enough to win a Saturn Award. <laughs> 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 that's amazing. That's like that's an actor way to think about it. I mean, it hurt. And it was it was kind of mean, but I mean, I won an award for it. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cristobal actually secured the role of Phoenix after his father came to see him in his mime school final performance. He went to yes, he went to school to learn to be a mime, which makes sense for this role. I couldn't imagine someone who isn't a mime playing that part because when he's doing her arm gestures and stuff, it's a, it's really a lot of miming because he's not talking. It's just, he's pretending to be her arms, and it's uh it's pretty interesting. Um, Jodorowsky and Cristobal had an argument over direction of Phoenix in the film, so they actually went as far as to only speak to each other through the assistant director. And for about a month after filming, they didn't speak. Cristobal had gone off to Bali, and he got a telegram that said, Call Alejandro. So he assumed something terrible had happened, and upon calling his father, Jodo exclaimed, The movie turned out great! You were wonderful! Come back, we've got to reshoot a few scenes. Oh. <laughs> and just, yeah, and just like that, Cristobal flew back, and they hugged, and they kissed and made up, and, uh, man, this family of artists is intense! Seriously. Yeah, what a ride. So that's, oh, oh, did I not, I must have skipped over something, because there is something I really wanted to tell you, because it's a crazy thing. So I'll just, I'll just tell you, since I didn't include it in the script, I don't think. So basically, the way Concha and 
Phoenix produced the way he like walks around behind her with the arms and they make it look so seamless. Jodorowsky literally instructed uh, Blanca to put her arms behind her back and like make them as flush with her as possible and then reach down and grab Cristobal's testicles. What? I'm not kidding. So that anguish look on his face when he's doing this is really because she has him literally by the balls. Oh my God. And but the dad, his actual real life dad told yeah, her yes, to grab yes. his balls. Yeah, she, she's like, you're going to hate me for this, but I need you to put your arms behind your back and grab my son's balls. <laughs> And that's the way you're going to walk. And, I mean, that is a good way, I guess, to, like, not edit her arms out, but have her arms not be there. Uh, You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That makes sense. But, yeah. I guess you'd have to hold on to something, but I feel like she could have put her hands in his pockets. (laughs) She definitely could have held something, I feel like, besides his testicles. (laughs) But, I mean, the... uh, the effect of that is good. He looks in pain. He looks pained. <laughs> yes. This dad just loves to torture his kids. I mean, he kind of did. He kind of <laughs> does a little bit. At least in, when he's in, when they're in directorial capacity, they are not his kids anymore. Yeah. <laughs> they are actors, and they will do what he says. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's a little intense. So, uh, Morgan, would you like to take a small break before you fill us in on the details of Goyo's life that loosely inspired this? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. All right. We will be back momentarily. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Welcome back to Her versus Reality. I'm Anna, and Morgan's going to tell us about Goyo Hernandez. Hi. All right. So, uh... The story starts <laughs> with a man named Gregorio, or Goyo as he was called, Cardenas Hernandez. He was born around Mexico City, they say, but he was from Veracruz. Like, that kind of background is a little washy, whatever you read, because in some reports it says he's from Veracruz, and others say he... Um, lived in Mexico City, like he's from there, but who cares? Also, his mother claimed that he had encephalitis when he was a baby, and that led to his strange behavior. It hasn't been ever confirmed that this was true, but that's like what the reports say. Some of his psychiatrists say that never happened, and that was just an excuse. Um, Others say, yeah, it was true. He did have some kind of brain damage from it. Um, encephalitis causes a swelling in the soft tissue of the brain, so it can create brain damage. Um, but he was known to have a very high IQ. He was very smart, but his criminal behavior started out as torturing animals when he was a kid. He was very cruel to animals. People said he was nice, but he would torture and kill animals um, brutally as a child up until his Oh, like, good. Yeah. Yeah, one of those guys. Um, one of the uh, serial killer triad things. Yeah, and also bedwetting some of these you Mm -hmm. know they say it 
doesn't lead to serial killers, but a lot of these traits are present in serial killers. So if you like to yeah, it's animals, not a, <laughs> maybe yeah. go talk to a therapist. Work through yeah. some of your anger. Yeah, so don't, don't, don't hurt if critters. you torture animals and wet the bed, there is a higher chance that you are in fact a serial killer or mm-hmm. you're just mm-hmm. a fucking piece of shit. So, I mean. <laughs> not because you wet the bed. Because not you because you wet the bed. Yeah, because no you shame abuse. there. You abuse and torture and kill animals that literally have done nothing to you and innocent. So as he was growing up, he was shy. He did graduate from high school. And around the age of 20, he received a full scholarship to study at a university for chemistry. In there, that was in Mexico City in the Tacuba neighborhood. He had met a woman, Gracielis Arias Avalos. So according to like the study I read and a couple of other reports from old newspapers, um, most of it I had to translate because it's in Spanish. Um, I know, I'm sorry. I couldn't find enough American or, you know, English at, uh, articles. Yeah, no, I, I found I found a few and I, f- I found a really cool study it's um, Dr. LaFora's controversial report on Gregorio Goya Cardenas, the Strangler of Tacuba. And that's what I've, like, used. Yeah, it was you one piece of... some stuff together. <laughs> yeah, I just pieced some things together because it has the background information. But he became infatuated with her. He would always offer her a ride because she would walk from the university back home. But she would always decline some people said they were friends. Others say that she didn't like him all that much. So there's different reports there. Um, well, he sounds like a creeper, so... You yeah, know. like he would always just come up whenever she's walking out of class. Like he would wait for her to walk out of any of her classes. Like he knew her schedule. And he'd be like, hey, you want a ride? <laughs> she's like, no, I don't. Bro, bro, that's low-key stalking and that's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> And according to the study, he was also obsessed with World War II. This was around 1942. So World War II was in all of the newspapers and articles, media. He would just like obsess over that. And around this time, he started using prostitutes. Uh, Some people say started using prostitutes at 15. Uh, His family did have money and his or the girl he was infatuated also had a bunch of money. Uh, Her dad was a famous criminal defense lawyer, or criminal lawyer. So around 1942, on August 15th, 1942, he had met a 16-year-old prostitute by the name of Maria de los Angeles Gonzalez, Um, He had talked to her about his studies and things, and she said she was working as a sex worker to fund her schooling because she wanted to get an education. So he ended up taking her back to his house, and that's where they had sex. And then he strangled her and took her body and buried it in his garden. Another, like the next week, I think it was the next week. Ah. So after that he strangled her, buried her in his garden. And in the following weeks, he also murdered Rosa Reyes, Raquel Martinez de Leon, 
or De Leon, they were both age 16. And, or sorry, Rosa was 14, Raquel was 16. Right. And he also had apparently consensual sex with them, like a transaction, and then he strangled them. And then after that, that's when he murdered his 19-year-old fellow chemistry student, Graciela Arias Avelos. According to this study, her parents became concerned because she would always come home. Like her class ended at 8 p.m. and she would always be home and they knew she'd be home late. So the dad was like, well, don't worry about it. She's probably, you know, tied up or she probably stayed late or something. So let's just not get too worried. And then by early morning hours, they became really concerned. Um, the next day, he went and reported his daughter missing. Um, and the dad apparently went out and questioned, like, if, did you see anything? Did anybody see anything? And when the police um, questioned students, they said they saw her getting into his car and they had his license plate. So he was the last known one. So they searched, they came to his house, they searched his car, they searched him and his house. They didn't find anything that would make them believe that, yeah, he did it. Just the hearsay from the other students. So they left. And then shortly after this, uh, that was on September 3rd, 3rd, 1942, he was arrested. All right, so September 3rd, 1942 is when she was missing. Uh, shortly after the questioning by police the next day, uh, he committed himself to a psychiatric hospital. Police came there to question him, and he said he was an inventor and an invisible man, and he could take these pills and then he would be no more. You couldn't see him. Mm -hmm. But he just had a handful of chalk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was shortly after oh. he came that he was assessed by psychiatrists. And they said he was faking it. They said he was not legally insane and he knew what he was doing. They were concerned that he was faking it so he could get out of being held criminally responsible due to his mental state. Um, but they said that it was fake. So the police ended up taking him into custody on September 7th, 1942. Around this time, they had started exhuming the bodies of the women buried in his garden. Um, so he's kind of like a spree killer because the first two or there was the first one. It was like one week and then he killed the next two, like, a few days after each other. Huh. I said, yeah, I love how exaggerated uh, Jodorowsky's account of how many people he killed was. Yeah, it was really only four. It was not, what, he's 17? Didn't he say 17? Yeah, he said it was 17. <laughs> yeah, no, it was just four. And he had buried you know, them. Wait, I'm, so I'm sorry, but you know what else is funny? Is what? that is that uh, Goyo didn't correct him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was wondering like how would he not correct him for that? He just let him think that. Um, nah, I guess he didn't care. I mean, because yeah. he whatever. is a normal man. That's mm. what he said until the day he died. Mm -hmm. <laughs> normal. Like, yeah. Okay. But right before the police exhumed the bodies, the neighbors all started smelling like rotting flesh. Came concerned, called the police back. And the police were at the house. And that's what I don't get because everybody said you could see the soil was overturned. Like they didn't 
search outside the house apparently that's um, that's so bizarre and lazy is what it is yeah it's very lazy so whenever they were unearthing the bodies or like digging in around in the dirt that was like disturbed they found a foot and then they uncovered the four bodies from his garden and he was kept in the prison for a little bit and then they put him back into the institution they said they they recommended incarceration because he was he had an extremely dangerous nature he received a guilty verdict pretty fast he went to the palacio negro de who i'm butchering this palacio negro de lucumberry prison and then he was transferred after that to a mental asylum called manicomio general de las Castaneda. <laughs> hi we didn't take spanish in school <laughs> i did but i'm just morgan's morgan's super rusty <laughs> Yeah, Palacio <laughs> Negro de la Cumberi. There you go. Woo! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> um, and then Manicomio General de la Castilla. <laughs> there you go. If you wanted me to say it like that. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> so, so somewhere, uh, doesn't say the month or anything. He escaped. Fancy that he escaped from the mental hospital. Uh, this, it was an, this sounds so so familiar. Hmm? Yeah, very <laughs> familiar. Uh, so, and a lot of people compare him or say he is the Ted Bundy of Mexico City. Yes, yes, because of his nickname, his famous nature, his escape. escape. Yeah, everything. So he escaped in 1946, and some reports say a patient, some say a nurse, do not know. Uh, there's several versions of the story. And that's where he returned to Lucumberi. The That was the prison he was first in. And that's where he remained. He was moved between different like areas of the prison over the years, but he stayed there until his release in 1976. Everybody said after he came back, he they were kind of concerned, like, well, what is his true mental state? Because sure. he was like a model prisoner, pretty much. So a lot of people are like, he is he insane or is he psychopath he had several examinations by several psychologists all of them had different opinions and they were all contradicting each other so they even gave him sodium thepentanol which is the truth serum and he actually denied ever murdering them and said that his friends were actually responsible this is definitely not reliable there yeah. was another <laughs> yeah he he had like so many different studies done on him for several years because like he was super smart he was very seductive he actually established a small business in jail <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. and was making money and then the press ate it up all the women around there they would come and give him stuff and some women but they helped with his other issues like sex you know uh, um yeah how, like how kind of them yeah they would bring him food and gifts and things and it was several women that would come see him in jail 
so he actually would sell cigarettes and drinks and he even um knitted in jail and he knitted purses for women and he was actually able to sell them and make a good income and he actually took the craft goods that other inmates had made and started an organized public sale of all these like crafts and stuff they made so of course all the women were like oh my god he's so good and i mean he was super fucking brilliant he actually went back to school and it sounds like he was smarter than ted bundy yeah yeah (laughs) definitely he was yeah yeah. because he ended up studying law he had access to the uh books in the library he studied law he also offered legal services to other inmates or advice i don't think he charged them um he wrote five books which his most famous one is uh celda 16 which is cell 16 but there are no english versions of that i looked everywhere then he wrote Cabellion de Locos, Adios, Lecumberi, Una Mente Turbulenta, and Campo de Concentration. So I think he wrote something about the jail being a concentration camp because it's called the concentration camp. But he did reflect his day-to-day life and his experiences and his observation of the criminal justice system. He also would stay in his cell alone. So a lot of it was like him being, you know, cut off from society and other people. And he said he this report says he's very he is particularly critical of psychiatrists whom he accuses of storing away the insane, adding, I wasn't honest with any of them because I'd reached the conclusion that they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah so he oh boy he's the smartest one in the room <laughs> oh boy yeah and the president no judge sorry the judge raul gutierrez marquez uh he ordered a release on separate september 1976 due to a lack of verification and then later he was actually pardoned by the president he went on to marry one of the women that that he saw in prison i think they were married in prison i don't know and they had five kids together wow yeah and he went on to study psychiatry uh, and kind of live a normal life yeah after he was released he was invited to the chamber of deputies and then he enrolled in the National Autonomous University of Mexico, and he studied law. There he graduated in 1985, and then he died 14 years later. In 1999? Yeah. He didn't party like it was 1999. Yeah, he died. Sorry. uh, The President Luis Echeverria, or Echeverria, Luis Echeverria, uh, he was pardoned by the president in 1976. Um, he was also in, invited to give a speech in the Congress of the Union. He was celebrated a hero. He got a standing ovation. And he was hailed as a great example and a clear case of rehabilitation. Yeah. Do you think Do you think the families of the people he murdered were pretty pissed about that? 
Yeah, there's like literally nothing on the family's uh, take of it. I know. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah, there's like nothing out there. I think um, maybe since he was such a media sensation, they wanted to portray him as a very, you know, changed individual. And uh, yeah, they want to play it that way. Taking the testimony of families won't be able to play it that way. Plus, Mexican press is not at all the same as American press. Like, you don't have the same journalistic integrity. Yeah. And, like, the state controls the media to an extent is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. I think because this was such a big media sensation, this was, like, a ploy by the government to say, our jails are good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can release criminals now. The and system I mean, works. Yeah, it's, like, around the same time that America was shutting down all the mental institutions and closing them and saying that we could rehabilitate people, which clearly wasn't the case. No, um, but a lot of those mental places needed to be shut down, though, because they were, like horrible places yeah they should have received more funding and you know um, yeah it needed a whole overhaul not just get rid of it (laughs) yeah because that's where i don't want to get a hole into like a a, a fucking machine um yeah right around what was it the 70s and 80s was when they they were really cracking down on but they started making those housing developments and like the different housing districts and stuff and they just released all these people who had never known anything other than hospital life without social workers without any kind of guidance and were like here's a house now go before like be a good member in society it's like they have no fucking clue good luck don't be dangerous yeah you literally set them out to fail maybe if you set them up with a job better housing stable uh therapy sessions and all that but no they were like nope they're all closed down yeah we can't we can't get into this it'll go on way too long (laughs) oh i know i i (laughs) i know i know i know so morgan hold on there's one more thing i want to add i forgot to add this earlier uh but a lot of people took this like one thing that he had said when they were asking people who had sex with him how is he in bed like does he get is he controlling is he abusive does he have rage or aggression they said after coitus pretty much like after they have sex he just goes into a really deep sleep this goes back to the um thing about encephalitis it can cause epilepsy so Mm. they were trying to say that maybe he was having epilepsy and was going like crazy due to the seizures and accidentally killed them it's like what and they're like because this is a post-ictal state after he had sex i'm like um don't think that's it Mm, yeah (laughs) i don't know if someone having an epileptic seizure can actually strangle a person for 12 minutes (laughs) i don't think so but i have heard this isn't the first time i've heard of someone with epilepsy becoming a killer though yeah because i mean it's like epilepsy is kind of brain damage in a way i mean every time there's a seizure there is a little 
um, yeah, it can fuck with you. Damage. And then you can have explosive reactions because there could be damage to your frontal lobe. Yeah. Or, but there are different forms of epilepsy, those temporal yeah. lobe epilepsy and all that, and those would, hmm. you know, have different effects on the brain. I feel like it was one of the last podcast episodes they were talking about someone with epilepsy um, doing something, I think. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm trying to remember. I think you're right. It's either that or a sword and scale. I don't even listen to that anymore. Um, not because the the host is a piece of shit, which he is. Um, <laughs> um, I just haven't listened to it in a really long time. Yeah. But I know that a lot of people stopped listening because he's a piece of shit. I <laughs> which still... Talk, which we've talked about this before, actually. Yeah, I don't want to get into it because I still listen and uh, whatever. He and that's your paid. choice, man. Yeah. We can do whatever the hell we want. And you know what? <laughs> I like Woody Allen movies. Crucify me. <laughs> uh, Midnight in Paris is a really good movie. <laughs> Isn't it? I it's got Dolly. Yeah, <laughs> right? Luke Wilson's adorable with his crooked nose. <laughs> Yeah. Owen Wilson. I said Owen Wilson, right? Did you? Owen. It's Owen Wilson. It's, it's Owen. I can't remember. I was thinking I Owen. Owen. I don't know. You it's may Owen. have said something. It is else. Owen. It is Owen. I know it's Owen. Yeah, it's Owen. Yeah. Okay. So I thought, since I know you've been busy and I've only been doing review work and podcast movies, so it's not super interesting to talk about. And some of it I literally can't talk about because they haven't been released yet. <laughs> nice you got the inside scoop uh yeah kind of i mean yeah okay <laughs> anyway i thought we sh- we could um just for shits and giggles go through like maybe our spotify or youtube and reveal what the last three things we listened to was oh jesus <laughs> <laughs> all right like Podcast wise or music? It could be doesn't matter. Whatever the last thing three things were. Hmm. Trying to go to my history. And my phone's being a dick. No phone. Behave. Okay. I got three three songs. Okay. Now okay, let me see what my recent Okay. Okay. Go. Alright. My last song I played was by King Tough, and that's T-U-F-F, King Tough, and it's the Black Moon Spell, which is a really good song. I like it. Number two is You're So Cool by Jonathan Bree. Really great song. And then <laughs> Goodbye Horses. <laughs> Um, but the the newer version by oh fuck Deftones what's his name? Um, che? I mean I do I do know the song that you're talking about. I didn't know that they covered it. Yeah, Crosses the the band Crosses did. Good I'm gonna versus. have to I'm gonna have to listen to that later. That'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, those are my three songs. What's yours? Okay, so. The last three things that I listened to were not songs. Oh, so. So, should I just pull up the songs that I listened to then? Yeah. Okay. Hold on. Let me get to that. <laughs> um, it's a lot of podcasts in the history. Okay. Oh, this is actually a really interesting time in my life. 
to reveal what the last three songs I listened to were. Oh god. <laughs> okay. Because it's not because it's not the kind of thing that I normally listen to at all. I've been on a kick lately. So okay. Um the first one is Bonfire by Childish Gambino. Oh nice. I love that. Yeah. And then uh yeah, and then um Swimming Pools by Kendrick Lamar. And then list and then list of demands by Saul Williams. I don't know the last one. Um, he's like a like I guess kind of a political rapper that I've been into for a long time. And I um, a lot of rap. <laughs> I I don't do that very often. I've been on a kick. It was really just it was really just like the other afternoon driving home. I just went on a kick. So I wanted to hear this one song. You gotta stop clicking. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was okay. exiting out. It's okay. I'm sorry. It was just like uh-huh. echoing in my ears. Okay, so, so, um, it started because I wanted to hear this song by The Coup called My Favorite Mutiny. Oh, I, I know that song. Damn. I love, I love that song. Um, I first heard it on an Urban Outfitters mix CD. <laughs> <laughs> that I got with my purchase there. Uh-huh. So, and I've, I've liked that song for a long time, and I hadn't heard it in a long time, so I just played it. And then those other songs were the next two ones that auto-played after that, because I was driving and didn't switch it over. <laughs> so that's, uh, so, yeah, I guess, I guess that's, that's, that's it. I guess that's it. <laughs> Sweet. Um, I just finished... I, I do want to talk about one thing that I just finished watching. I just finished watching the latest season of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, don't tell me. I just started it. Morgan, I, I need you to binge watch all of it soon. Oh, no, just the... the uh, I've watched all of it, except for, I think, the, the last... The finale? Oh, the, the ones that just came out yesterday. Yeah. Okay, I need need you to finish those. <laughs> yeah, I think I have two. Um, yeah. Let me know when you finish them because I have to talk to someone about this. I, I I'm I me too. I'm dying. I have to talk to someone about this. Okay. Because this has been a interesting season and I I need to talk about it. Okay. Please. So, literally I'll put that literally on my list too. <laughs> literally, literally finish that and call me. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> oh man, that's that's how I feel about it. Um, yeah, I just want to say I love the actor who plays Lenny Bruce. I want to lick him from head to toe a little bit. <laughs> He's tasty. Yeah, I really like him as Lenny Bruce. I just want to say that. <laughs> Uh, yeah. That's how I feel about that. <laughs> um, I think we're gonna pl- politely, uh, <laughs> duck out now. <laughs> yeah, he was thinking about, uh, oh, I don't know the actor's name. It's, I think Luke Kirby is his name? Yeah. Yeah. Lick Luke. <laughs> lick Luke Kirby. <laughs> don't I'm lick not. Luke. <laughs> I'm not. I think he's a married man. I'm not positive, but. He is a married man, because I... Have you also looked this up? <laughs> Stop, Tim. 
I'm glad you're on the same page. We yeah. both think he's delicious. Excellent. He's a pretty redheaded wife. Aw. Oh, I used to be redheaded. <laughs> it looks like he likes red hair, woman. She looks Aww. natural. <laughs> I was not. I'm a natural blonde. <laughs> I say that like my hair is not a very light color right now. My hair is like silver. <laughs> I've been, I've been rocking this look since, like, October. I like this um, silver. Thank you. I, I dig it, too. Like, it's apparently, like, bringing all the boys to the yard, if you know what I mean. Like, I've gotten some of those. <laughs> I've gotten some of those, like, random messages on social media from exes that I haven't talked to in a really long time. Oh, those I'm like, are uh, not fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, um, I'm glad you like my hair and think I'm hot, but fuck off, please. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, one of them I thought just wanted to be friends, and so I was just, like, kind of casually talking to them, and then um, I posted, like, a really happy picture of Mark and I after Christmas, and they just, like, stopped talking to me. And I was like, oh, you didn't know. Oh, you didn't really go through my Instagram, did you? Yeah, that's <laughs> always so awkward, because I've, like... I posted a picture of me and said I'm starting over because in February, like January really sucked for me. And in February, yeah. I posted a picture and said, this is I'm starting over 2022. February is the new January. And I posted a picture of me. I got I remember. three messages from fucking men. And they were talking to me. and I was like, oh, it would be nice. And they're like, so you broke up with your fiance? I'm like. Fuck off! Um, no, that's no. why you're talking to me, you prick. They're like, yeah, you posted that, and I thought you uh, ended it. I'm like, no, never. Oh. Fuck off. Have a good life. <laughs> if anybody's uh, listening that, that messaged me, you know who you are. I don't yeah, know. what the fuck? But it was like three. <laughs> I got three what? in messaging me. For that yeah. Time. Yeah, it's absurd. <laughs> This was not a thirst trap. It was just like, I feel good today, so I'm going to take a picture. Yeah. <laughs> Can I do <Jesus>. this? <laughs> Without being exhausted? Think... <laughs> right? Jeez. On that note, we're going to end today's episode. We will see you later on in March for the next episode, which we honestly have to discuss exactly what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, bye. Bye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.